start in chapter 3. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision, which is an interesting image, mental or otherwise. I mean, circumcision is the practice where something is snipped off. You don't uncut things. Actually, it's two completely different words in Greek that are used here for circumcision and uncircumcision because the concepts are, are two radically different things, but they're connected to the same basic point. Membership in the community of faith is typified by circumcision, whereas being outside the community of faith was typified by no circumcision. <laughs> Hence, no cutting. Mm. Circumcision indeed is of value if you practice the law, you obey the law. Now remember, circumcision was prior to the Mosaic Covenant, prior to the law of Moses. Abraham circumcised. Circumcision pre-existed the law and was a visible, physical characteristic symbolizing membership in the family of God and in the covenant even prior to the covenant, which is an interesting idea completely. Kind of like the, um, the tithing in, in respect as well. Right? Tithing pre-existed the law. It's really not part of the law. Now, the law incorporates regulations concerning giving and tithing, first, second tithe, third tithe, but it doesn't mandate it as an aspect specifically of the law. It predated the law. Likewise, details with regards to how to circumcise and when to circumcise is contained within the law. It is affirmed through the law, but it, it predates the law. Sabbath-keeping. The seventh day, Sabbath day, predates the law and is affirmed by the law. Hmm. Now what do you mean by the law? The law of Moses, the Torah, okay. the, that, the law that was given by God on Mount Sinai to the Israelites. So they had all that before, before the commandment was given? They had circumcision, they had okay. Sabbath day keeping. Blood, blood sacrifice too. Blood sacrifices existed prior to the law. Yeah, dietary regulations. They had all of those. They had many of those features, which were then later codified within the law, which is an interesting thing to note. Yeah, and, and where do we file that piece of information? I mean, how, how does that affect us, or should affect us? Well, as Christians today. It, it may or may not. You thought you were going to get into chapter 3. We, we are getting into chapter 3. <laughs> we are. It may or it may not. Some aspects of your question are going to be covered when we move a little further into Romans. Um, that's an interesting question as to how we file that. How does that impact us as Christians today? Does that mean that circumcision should continue to be practiced since it was prior to the law? Well, not necessarily, as we're getting ready to find out here. What was it if it was prior to the law? A symbol of, mem of trustworthiness, of membership in the community. Oh, it was a, good, a, tr 
tribal or community. Tribal is a good way of defining it, yeah. And it was, yeah, and it's the reason why it's practiced outside of Jewish and Christian communities today. There are lots of religious communities and cultural communities that practice circumcision and for many different reasons. The Muslims practice circumcision because they trace their lineage straight back through, into Abraham. So, I mean, it's there too. It, it was a tribal cultural practice with religious overtones, which was then adopted within the Mosaic Covenant to symbolize those who were within that covenant, to be an outward and visible sign of being a member of that community, covenant community. For half the people, anyway, right? Well, for the guys, yeah. For the counties? Yeah. You know, I had to laugh, though, just a real quick story. I was reading chapter 25 of Genesis with Morgan, which was my and um, she read almost half of it and one of the, the things it talked about was when Isaac or, uh, when Moses or, uh, Abraham's servant went to find a wife for Isaac and uh, and one of them he put his he made an agreement he put his hand under his leg when he was before he was leaving and Martin goes what's that about? And it made me think back to it. Grab his thigh. No, a little bit over. Right. So that's, how, that's, how James, that's how the King James, you know. That's, um, a, that's a Hebraic euphemism. Right. So I said, well, it's just like you shaking hands today. Or something. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that'll make him feel really right. special. Later. I thought when she gets a little older and gets into one of Dr. Neal's studies, <laughs> <laughs> he can explain it to her. Yeah, right. I can see myself turning as red as that Bible there. <laughs> Let's try again. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, if you're going to depend upon your membership in the community, in the, in the covenant community, in the Mosaic covenant, and if you're going to depend upon that for your salvation and the external signs of that for your salvation then you've got to keep the law. All right? You've got to keep it completely. Otherwise, if you break it, if you fail to obey it, then you might as well be uncircumcised, might as well not be a member of the community because it's not going to help you. If your salvation is dependent upon being a circumcised member of the Jewish community or Jewish Christian community in this case, if that's how your salvation is determined or maintained, then you better keep the law. You better keep the law. So if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Those who aren't circumcised do sometimes keep the law. And therefore, because they're doing that, shouldn't they be considered part of the community as well? The, um, the New Living Translation renders this rather well. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey the law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles this is verse 27. In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are, who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. 
then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have the written code. You've got the written code and you've got circumcision, but you break the law. You don't keep the law. For a person, and this is the part that just must have caused the Jewish Christians the greatest amount of frustration. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. The New Living Translation renders that. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's spirit. Hmm. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. That's not bad. Let's take the next step, though. If, is he saying that Jews can worship God without going to if a Jew is willing to abide by the requirements of the Mosaic Covenant and be a good Jew and keep the law and keep the, the high holy days and all the elements, all the facets, all the, the precepts of the law, yes. And what do you mean by that's, all the precepts of the law? That's the problem. You've got to be able to do it all without fail from day one, or at least from accountability, if you want to include that idea. And they say it's impossible to keep the 600 and something. <laughs> yes. So in other words, not the caricatured, watered-down, uh, carefully selected thumbnail sketch of what we think people ought to obey, ignoring all the rest of it. No. If you can keep it all, then yes. Doesn't that also include the blood sacrifices? Mm -hmm. And the blood sacrifices as often as they were supposed to do them on the religious holidays? Follow all the blood sacrificial regulations. For a while, the concept of blood sacrifice predated the law. It was codified within the law and therefore became governed by it. And you had to keep it and do it in order to receive the benefits that it brought. And do it the way it was codified in the Torah to do it. We forget that Judaism, prior to the destruction of the Second Temple, was a sacrificial religion. It was not a good thing to be a sheep <laughs> in, in, in biblical Judea. He <laughs> just didn't want to do that. So you could even fail to keep parts of the law, therefore it would be a sin or a transgression, but you could come back then with a sacrifice sure. that would atone for that, that, and you'd still be, if you died right after that, you'd still go to heaven because you That was the purpose keeping. of the sacrificial system, the understanding 
that you couldn't keep the law completely. So the sacrifices were used to wash away the sins that you committed and uh, because you couldn't keep the law. Then after you've, you've done your sacrifice at the particular time, the particular place as predicted and, and, and delineated in scripture, once you've done that, then you're clean, you're free until the second you walk out of the temple and do something that the law says you're not supposed to do or don't do something that the law says you're supposed to do and then bango, you're in trouble. So instead of the Catholic giving the last rites, a Jewish rabbi had to run up Actually, to burn me. <laughs> not, not quite, because all the, all the fat belongs to the Lord. That's really close to what they used to do. They used to have a procedure whereby they could do emergency uh, worship service and a, and a projection of the sin onto the animal and then slaughter it and burn it there in, in the temple. Well, that's just like somebody dying? Yes, Before it could be done. It would have to be done. It, it could be done with the standard procedures. and You had to hang on until it was finished. And that is truly a, a, an act of faith. I mean, yes, Because you are is. acting on the belief that this needed to be done. You're depending upon the veracity of what the scripture says you should depend upon, just as we depend upon the veracity of this. That's getting harder and harder these days. <laughs> I mean, this dollar bill is a very, I mean, it's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, which is quite frankly terrifying. <laughs> However, its value is going up against the euro. I mean, that's you know quite a lot lately. So, uh, and but, the pound. Yeah, and the pound. Uh, so this is this right here is kind of like those temple sacrifices. You had trust, you had faith that when you did the sacrifice, it would be honored by God and you'd be covered by God. Now, once upon a time, these were backed by gold. And that meant that you could take these and receive a certain amount of gold for the promise. That's why it's called a promissory note. All right. Yeah, they used to have silver certificates. Silver them. certificates. Some of them were backed by silver. And back in that time, your money was uh, more solidly based. And in that context, you can understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as being the gold that backed all of the ancient Hebraic sacrifices before him and also after him up to 70 A.D. The idea being that his death for the sins of the whole world, which we access through faith, is that which casts the shadow back to the sacrificial system, which the people had faith in to cleanse them of their sins in the Hebraic time. It's the typology concept of Jesus Christ's death on the cross as a sacrifice, casting a shadow back to the sacrifice of animals in, in the ancient times. And their faith is on the act of the sacrifice and God receiving the sacrifice and forgiving because of the shed blood that was the, where life was contained and is paying for the, the sins of the people. The sins of the people are projected onto the animal and then the animal is sacrificed and that blood is then used to atone for their sins that is the shadow of Jesus on the cross, the Lamb of God, that's where that image comes from, who was dying on the cross for our sins. 
Now, didn't they used to? Uh, didn't there a transition somewhere there, or uh, you know, a line where, like I, Abraham was asked, it was very common to pray. Could be common a request to sacrifice human blood, a human. Well, the question was asked, how can, how can the blood of animals stand in for human blood? Because uh, death calls for death. Uh, but that was, that's part of God's grace in allowing that fiat. Yeah, there was that question, and of course that stands behind that concept that Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac actually occurred. I think that's nonsense. <laughs> but, <laughs> but something must have to tell that story. And that looks like, almost like it came full cycle, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, in a sense. The idea had been in very early Canaanite Philistine periods, well before Abraham, human sacrifice was practiced for the very purpose of paying for the sins of others. That idea was repugnant, so animals were put in the place of that well before Abraham. Well, well before. Uh, way actually going all the way back to the very beginning, but... Well, God stopped became, the animals. God is, it, it would... Well, the concept of sacrifice, we see it in Cain and Abel. And you bring the best. You brought the best. Yeah, but it wasn't just the best. It was a specific, it was a blood sacrifice. Isn't that why you well, have the rejection of the, of the one and the acceptance <clears throat> of the other? Uh, Cain didn't bring the best of his field. He brought some of the produce. Abel brought the best of his flock. Well, wasn't that the first fruit sacrifice? That's, not the, not that's the right. Blood, not a blood sacrifice. That's where, that's where you draw the biblical, or the biblical basis for the first fruits. He brought some of his field. He didn't bring the best or all. Whereas Abel brought the best of his flock. And the best can mean first. It wasn't an atonement sacrifice. It, it was, was the first fruit sacrifice. It was a first fruits, a Thanksgiving sacrifice, literally. In that case. Well, that sounds pagan, doesn't it? Oh, no, it sounds wonderful, actually. <laughs> God gives us all that we have, and we give thanks to God for that which we have received. Uh, that is a beautiful, beautiful yeah, you do it that way, But if you're doing that way, so your crops will continue, yeah. and so that you right. can atone for things that you might be happening out there like bad seasons and things. But no, it's like what I'm saying is it was a Thanksgiving sacrifice, not a or a Thanksgiving offering, not a atonement sacrifice. And that gets back to that Had that been an atonement sacrifice, that would have been the reason why the the offering would have been rejected. But the rejection of Cain's offering was is that it was inadequate. It was the wrong it wasn't the first or the best. Mm -hmm. It was just some of the produce. And that, in, in, that is the reason why it wasn't accepted. And um, I mean, we're way off to our <laughs> subject, but um, actually we're not because, because we get back to the whole idea of what was circumcision supposed to be. Circumcision was that outward and visible sign of being a member of this community. If you can't keep the law in its entirety, then you might as well forget about it. And that means keeping the law, attending to the sacrificial system. And what Paul and Christians are saying is, is that because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, we don't have to depend upon the, the law and upon the outward and visible sign of circumcision. We depend upon the sacrifice, Jesus himself, 
which underwrites all of the biblical sacrifices of the Old Testament, the Old Testament system, the Mosaic system. And it's so powerful that the law simply now becomes, as we find in the letter to the Galatians, a, a, a schoolmaster, a, a teacher showing us how much we need to turn to that eternal sacrifice rather than trying to depend upon ourselves. And those who realize that and who have the law written on their hearts and have their hearts changed uh, to have, uh, have a circumcision of the heart, if you will, uh, those who realize that are the ones whom Paul is calling the true Jews, true members of the covenant community. Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law, back in 27, will condemn you that have the written code and circumcision but break the law. That's what I was looking for. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is not a matter, it is a matter of the heart. It is a, it is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? It's like a conversation he's anticipating here. <laughs> then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Hmm. Well, I could think of a lot of answers to that right now, but let's see what Paul said. Much in every way. Well, it doesn't sound like it. I mean, it sounds as though, why bother being a Jew? What, what's the purpose of it? If you don't have to keep the dietary regulations, if you don't have to keep the blood purity laws, if you don't have to keep the sacrificial system, if you don't have to keep the clothing regulations, if you don't have to keep all of this stuff, if you don't have to be circumcised, then, then, then why bother? What, what, what purpose is it? What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision much in every way? For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? Mine says the very words, so I'm thinking. Read, read your verse 2. They have been trusted with the very words of God. The very words of God. Hmm. It's say the scriptures and particularly the promises they contain. Hmm. The logia to say you. Logos, word, logia, plural, words. Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles, pronouncements, sayings, words. The ability to know who God is. Of God. Yeah. A revelation, an expression. Uh, they are entrusted with the, the particular, specific revelation of God. 
Everybody has the general revelation in creation. The Jews have an advantage in that they received the particular revelation, the logia to theu. But even more so, even more so, it, it, who is, gave it away, who is the preeminent logia of God? Jesus. Jesus, the word who becomes flesh and dwells among us. John, 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 John. Ding, 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 ding. The logia, the oracles, the words of God, yes. And the word, halagos to theu, the word of God. Hmm. Does, that, does the Greek have anything for an exclamation point? Or a question mark? Well, it has that? been added by translators, but at this period of time, no. Would not stop it doesn't have question marks either, right? No. Okay. No punctuation. Context. Uh, the only punctuation ancient Greek had was this. And they would put it at the end of a paragraph. And you see it in many manuscripts. Those two little X's one on top of the other at the end of a paragraph. They would sometimes put them at the end of a very, very important sentence within a paragraph. But for the most part, you only found them at the end of paragraphs. And not even there sometimes. Just depending. It was one of the conventions of Koine Greek that at the end of a complete thought, i.e. a paragraph-length thought or argument, you would put the little X's. But that's as close as they came to punctuation. So the Greek is saying that they had the word of God. Here it's saying they um, much in every way for in the first place the Jews were entrusted with the logia to theu, the words of God. But logia, words, it's a more formal concept than just words. Uh, we talk about the word of God. We, we mean more than you know, words written on paper, right? We, when we're talking about the scriptures as the word of God, it, it's, it's all that is contained within that idea. The oracles gets the idea across. The pronouncements, the revelation gets the idea across. But the literal word is word, logia, words. Logia to theu. <clears throat> what if some were unfaithful Will their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Boy. Don't we face that all the time, though? People look at the faithlessness of, of believers and think that means that God is faithless. The sinning of believers and think that God approves of it. The violence of believers and think God approves of that. No. I mean... Believers make mistakes. Same is true here. What if some were unfaithful? Uh, the NASB reads, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Hmm. The words here are rooted in the word for pistis, faith, and faithing action. Um, what if some were unfaithful? 
What if some were uh, not practicing belief or not faithing? What if some were not faithing or are not faithing? Will their lack of faithing nullify the faithing of God or the trustworthiness of God? Faithfulness of God is a good translation there. By no means. Meginoito. Meginoita, which literally means hell no. <laughs> hell no. Although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. So just because some people fail, that doesn't mean that God fails. Just because some people are faithless doesn't mean that God is faithless. God is faithful. You know, my, the Rotterhams has a nice translation I like at the end of verse 4, or the middle, I guess, where the King James says, Thou, um, God forbid, yea, let, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou might, mightest be justified in thy saying, the, the um, Rotterdam says that thou might be declared righteous. And I, I like that a little better than justified, only because it casually you can read justified and say, oh yeah, so I'm, I'm okay because of what I've done. Whereas declared righteous means, oh, he's still declaring me righteous, irregardless of what. Hopos ein dikaiothes. from From dikaia, righteous. That you may be righteousified in your words. Yeah, I wrote that down in pencil too. <laughs> righteousified in words. That you may be declared righteous, declared righteous in, in tois logois, in your words. And prevail when you are judged. But if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? <laughs> I speak in a human way. <laughs> in case you hadn't figured it out, I'm speaking like a fool here. By no means. Hell no, Meganoita. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood God's truthfulness abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? <laughs> and why not say, as some people slander us as saying that we say, let us do evil so that good may come? Oh, <laughs> uh, let's so uh, let's see. Let's let's get that in the uh, New Living. Um, well, just uh, yeah, read that for us in the Living Translation. I want to hear how that reads. Uh, beginning at verse, go at, begin at verse five, chapter three. But some say our faith of God is good. Sins serve a good purpose, for people will notice how good God is when they say that when they see how bad we are. Is it fair then for Him to punish us when our sins are helping Him? Helping Him. <laughs> That's interesting. I like that. <laughs> Stop right. Yeah, that new living is very similar. But some might say, 
Our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people to see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. <laughs> okay, keep going. Verse 6. God forbid. Then what kind of God would he be to overlook sin? How could he ever condemn anyone? For he could not judge or condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty brought him glory by turning up his honesty in contrast to my life. <laughs> if you follow through with that idea, you come to this. The worse we are, the better God likes it. <laughs> oh, the worse we are, the better God likes it. What does he say about that? Can their condemnation is deserved? But the damnation of those who say such things is just. <laughs> yeah. Yet some claim that yeah. this is what I preach. That is really... Yeah, they claim that Paul was saying that you ought to sin... <coughs> in order for God's grace to abound, to be more known, for God's forgiveness to be greater, you got to have more sin. To get more forgiveness, you got to be a bigger sinner. you got to give yeah. more to get more. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. We want to have a whole lot of grace. Let's have a whole lot of sin and degenerate it, right? No. <laughs> I mean, like you saying that to doing that gives us an opportunity to forgive you. <laughs> yeah. I'm just doing it to give you an opportunity. <laughs> you want to be able to forgive me of something, don't you? I got to sin first for you to forgive me. The New Living Translation reads from verse 6 Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But, someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? Unquote. And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. I, I like the, the Living Translations rendering there and the New Living Translations rendering. That, that does make it clear. How, how silly it is. How <laughs> ridiculous the claims were. The whole idea. Let's sin more so we can get more grace. Wow. I like damnation instead of come in, in that one rather than mm -hmm. condemnation. Let him be damned. That says damnation. Though. Damnation. He's deserved. It says condemnation. The damnation of those who say such things is just. Damn right. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> the NAS reads from verse 6, May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? Verse 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? <laughs> and why not say, uh, as we are slander slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Uh, the little was better. Yeah, much better. <laughs> it was clearer. It's clearer and actually a little closer to the intent and the sarcasm. Remember, yeah. Paul loves sarcasm. He loves to employ it as a literary device to get his point across. 
in wooden translations into English where we're trying to be oh so holy and careful with scripture, we sometimes fail to get that playfulness through. And the New Living and the Living did a good job of it. Did a good job of it there. What then? Verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. If you're a Jew, you're under the power of sin. If you're a Greek, you're under the power of sin. Jews have the advantage of having the words of God, the oracles of God. They also have the advantage of ha having Jesus to begin with. But in the end, we're all under the power of sin. And now we get a very fascinating example of Paul pulling from multiple places in the Old Testament and in a free form uh, quote. If you look up here on the board, you'll see it broken down. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Verses 10 through 12, Paul is freely quoting, uh, paraphrasing, from the Greek Old Testament version of Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Verse 13, the first half of verse 13, he's quoting from Psalm verse 5, chapter 5, verse 9. In verse 13b, the second half of verse 13, he's quoting from Psalm 140, verse 3. In verse 14 of Romans chapter 3, he's quoting from Psalm 10, verse 7. In verses 15, 16, and 17, He's quoting, in part, a paraphrastic version of Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> and in verse 18, he's quoting from part of Psalm 36, verse 1. Did he have to look those up? <laughs> no. He was, now, now, when you read it, you don't notice it. He has taken each bit from memory, having committed the Septuagint, as well as the Hebrew, I believe, to memory. He knows it by heart. He can free form, quote it, adjust it, merge it together for it to say what he believes it needs to be said. Would we consider it a valid form of quoting from the scriptures? No. In fact, I would have gotten a D or an F if I did it in the seminary. But when the Holy Spirit does it, you've got something else going on. Now, there are more allusions to be drawn than just the ones on the right here. There are other possible quotations. Uh, for 14, 1 through 3, you can also find parallel in, in Psalm 53. So there are, And there are other examples in Ecclesiastes and elsewhere where you can find echoes. But these seem to be the principal places. Um, next time, when we pick up next time, oh, we still got plenty of time. Well, I will have this printed out for you. I, I did it just before class today. Um, 
Psalm, I'm going to read Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all gone astray, they are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good, no, not one. There is no, verse 10, as it is written, and this is in Romans, verse 10. There, as it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. This one says, do with good. That actually, I think, is, is, is a little bit better than kindness in that he uses the word doing good, good works throughout, uh, you know, verse chapters 1 and 2, saying mm -hmm. how... And in, my, in the NRSV, Psalm 14, verse 3, there is no one who does good, no, not one. That's <laughs> how it reads there. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Now... The problem that we will have as we parallel these is most of our translations of the Psalms are translations from the Hebrew. That's true for your New King Jimmy. That's true for my NRSV, for the New Living Translation, the NASB, the Holman Bible, the RSV. They're all translations of the Hebrew. Are there any that are not? The King James, the old King James, depends more heavily upon the Septuagint at this point. Though they did have the Hebrew and they did look at it, they understood the Septuagint better and they used it more of it for its translation. Um, <coughs> not always, but they did follow it more closely. You can get an English translation of the Septuagint directly. I, I have one. And it, it reads more closely to what you have here in, in, the, in the New Testament <clears throat> quoting of the Septuagint. There is no question that Paul is quoting this and paraphrasing it and massaging and adjusting it from the Greek Old Testament. He's not using the Hebrew, although he would have known the Hebrew. Why reinvent the wheel? He's pulling from the Greek Old Testament here, from the Greek version of the psalm here. In doing this. Beginning at verse 13, I'm going to read the psalm first. The Greek, though, that he's quoting from, <laughs> wouldn't that have been translated from the Hebrew? The Septuagint Greek of uh, the Psalms was translated from the Hebrew, yes. So somewhere. It goes back to the Hebrew. But there's a, but it, 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 there's a difference then. Well, there's a difference both in transmission, things were changed a little bit in the Greek Septuagint over time. Uh, between its translation and when Paul used it. But there's also opinions in terms of translation choice. And it's always best to go back to the original language. But the original language of what Paul was using in Romans was the Septuagint, not the Hebrew. Which is why one of the reasons why you find so many differences in the New Testament quotes of Old Testament passages. You find a lot of differences from our Old Testament because 
the New Testament authors were using the Greek Old Testament. And what about Jesus? He did as well when well, he was quoting in the temple, wasn't he? We don't know. Most likely, the historic occasion was that Jesus would have used a Hebrew scroll. For example, when he was in the synagogue there at Capernaum, and he read from the Isaiah scroll, it would have been a Hebrew scroll that he read from, but in the Gospels, the Greek translation is given. Not a fresh Greek translation from the Hebrew, but a simple citation of the equivalent Isaiah passage from the Septuagint. So just because Jesus is depicted as giving it in the Septuagint rendering does not mean that that's what he gave, that's what he read at, in, the, in the synagogue at Capernaum. Uh, that argument, that seems to me to be the more likely case that actually while he read from the Isaiah scroll from the Hebrew, when the translators, uh, when, when, the, when the writers of the Gospels, excuse me, were, were writing this down, they, they used the Greek Septuagint that is quoted from it. And this had a, in the commentaries there, it had an annotation somewhere in this Romans. We were just reading about quotation marks, and it uh -huh. said, Greeks used them, to, and it was in the Hebrews. The original writing didn't have them. There were a, there was a form of a quotation mark that could that did exist and was used in some copies, but not all. So you'd know when the guy was kind of personalizing a little bit if he put quotation marks in there because that wouldn't be. In he in this case, yes. In this case, yes, because as it is written. Verse 10, the quotation mark is words, as it is written. And then everything that follows that, he's quoting. But he's quoting not in the way that we would think of as quoting. He is taking it and integrating multiple verses from multiple sources throughout the Old Testament and adjusting them as he knits them together. So he was really the original living translation. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, in a sense, there's a lot of similarity between what they do and what Paul did. Now, there's another way to understand this. Paul was taking as his inspiration the Old Testament passages, the, the Septuagint passages, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was creating new scripture. Which that sounds like the people sinning, so God will be no, glorified. No, because... You know? But in that or tying it together, what was previously tying split, together that tying it together, showing us how it relates, kind how of it Jesus, can be understood as relevant. Yeah. Jesus did it too, not as looked. not as blatantly in one place oh, with multiple yeah. collections, yeah, but Jesus did it too. Wouldn't it be nice to have his writings of what he said to the men on the road? Yeah, because yeah. I bet he did a lot of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. he, I bet he did. We just don't have it. So isn't all this this stuff here that he's pulling from Psalms? Mm -hmm. And he, I wouldn't say insulting, but he's kind of he is. He's kind of saying all these fools, and this is how you are all fools, and this is and that's how he's weaving it together. It looks like man's folly, man's foolishness, something. Yeah, that's what he's pulling together here. Psalm five, verse nine, and it's the second half of it. Their hearts are destruction, their throats are open graves, they flatter with their tongues. 
is parallel from verse 13, first half of it. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. Second half of verse 13. And under their lips is the venom of vipers. Sila from the Psalm 140 verse 3. Psalm 140 verse 3. Their mouths are full of cursing. Oh, excuse me. Their, the venom of vipers is under their lips. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Verse 14 pulls from Psalm 10, verse 7, the first half. Their mouths are filled with cursing and deceit. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 15 through 17. Their feet run to evil and they rush to shed innocent blood their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity desolation and destruction are in their highways the way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their path that's Isaiah 59 verses 7 through 8a and that's paralleled here in in Romans with uh, 15 through 17, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery are in their paths, and the way of peace they have not known. And then verse 18 pulls from Psalm 36, 1, the second half. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul pulls from Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36. Little bits of all of those. And knits them together to create what, when you read it as a whole, is very coherent. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are opened graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the situation that we all find ourselves in. When we claim we ought to sin more so there can be more grace. We ought to commit more sin so we can have more forgiveness. Uh, the whole idea is corrupt from its foundation because we already do this. It can't get any worse, not really. This is as bad as it can possibly be. <clears throat> Definition of a wretch. Read Romans chapter 3 <laughs> verses 10 through 18. I especially just get hit again and again when I read this. Their throats are opened graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. 
he describes here the situation of all, of what it means to be trapped in the sinful state. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight. That's another quote. By deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Remember the idea that Paul had articulated in the letters to the Galatians and elsewhere that, that the law is a schoolmaster, a teacher to teach us about how much we need Jesus, how far we have fallen short of God's glory. The law is given to teach us what sin is. That was its purpose as being given. Are there any questions? Are we is this the primary spot where Paul plagiarizes so much or just borrows no. him? Doesn't he do that all along? He, he's quoting from scripture in the method that was common amongst rabbis in his day. To freely pull to adjust, to interpret in, in, in what you select and allow to be knit together. What he did was a common practice amongst the rabbis. So he wouldn't have to say, and as like our preachers do, as scriptures say, he wouldn't have to say that. They wouldn't know he was doing that already. Well, he does that. He says, as it is written. But what we would say is, uh, as it is written in... Psalm. I, Psalm, Psalm 140 or Psalm 14, whatever, 14. Right. I mean, he doesn't have to give the citation of location. First of all, they didn't have chapter and verse then. So how could you do it? And sometimes when the New Testament will say things like as it says, as the prophet Isaiah says or something like that. And they don't necessarily mean the prophet Isaiah. They mean the greater prophets, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But um, no, um, uh, they, will, they will often say as it is written or as the prophets say or as David said, i.e. quoting from the Psalms. But, but, but they, they don't give a specific location. And here he doesn't do it at all. He pulls from all over. He pulls from, well, it's from the prophets and the writings, from Isaiah and from the Psalms. The, the Jews, the Christian Jews would know exactly what he's talking about. The Gentiles wouldn't. The Gentiles would have had, well, a few, pequeño, small number of Gentiles who had been familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, because they had been God-fearers before becoming Christians. They would have known he was quoting because they, would have, they may not have known it as well, but they would have, it would have pinged them. Ah, I remember that from somewhere in the Psalms. And since he says it was written, I mean, we know he's quoting. The Jewish Christians, for the most part, yeah, they're going to know. That's what I'm saying, this crowd, this crowd he's speaking to, you know, the masses. And the Jews are going, yeah, yeah, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the 10% the, the of the Gentiles maybe are going. Even smaller. Yeah. And, and then the rest of them are going, what is, that's. And remember, this part he's writing on. specifically to the Jewish Christians in the Roman community. He's saying. Look, 
you've been lauding it over your Gentile sisters and brothers and saying to them, we're the Jews, you're not. You're the Johnny-come-latelys. You're the Gentiles who've become into the family of God because of Jesus, and now you need to get cut on, circumcised. Yeah, to become a real member of the community. And Paul's saying, uh-uh, no. You don't keep all the law yourself. And yet these people over here show greater reality, greater truth of the law being written in them than you do. These Gentile Christians have a greater expression of the law being written in them, of having the circumcision of the heart more so than you do. So your circumcision is more really uncircumcision, and their uncircumcision is more circumcision. They have a circumcision of the heart. You just got out of the flesh. And if you're depending upon that circumcision for salvation, you can forget it because of this. We're all a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. We've got mouths like graves and venom under our tongues. By our own strength, by our own ability, by our own capacity, we're poo-poo. He's doing this to Jewish Christians for a specific reason. They are lauding the fact that they have the scripture. They have the logia, the oracles, the writings. They're saying, look at us, pay attention to us. You Gentiles need to become more like us. You gotta get, you we're better than you are. You gotta get snipped on, you gotta keep the dietary regulations, all that kind of stuff. You gotta do it. And we're better than you because we've got the written and word. And we've got it. And he's saying, okay, here's the written word. And he starts quoting from it so that they can see themselves in it. I see what he's doing there. And he is saying to them, we are all this. Look at verse 9 again. What then? Are we, 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 are we any better off? He's including himself here. Mine reads, are we better than they? Are we any better off? Are we better than they? Are we better than they? Literally is what it says. Are we any better off? Are we better than they? Hell no. Meganoita. Not at all. For we have already charged that all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written. Bango. And then he pulls these snippets from the Psalms and from Isaiah to illustrate what it means to be under sin. And we're all, we, we are all in this situation. The same source they would point to for all these regulations that they're evidently... Yes! They've been pointing back to the law and saying, pay attention to us. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And... These poor Gentile Christians have been so, <laughs> and give me the thing, give me the give me the scissors. I can take it. Some did. Exactly. I can see why they did. Yeah. And you know, so you shut up and go away. And Paul is saying, uh, if you're gonna beat on them with Leviticus Exodus. Deuteronomy and Numbers, here, let me beat on you with the Psalms and Isaiah. <laughs> and he does. This is like one of the great big two-by-four. Wham! 
Here, this is you. This is us. We be this. You can't see that speck for the beam in your own. And that's what we got here. He says, you think you're so good. You know, we think, let let me personalize this. We think we're so good as Jews. Well, no, we're not. Because both Jews and Gentiles are all under this. And then, like, we think we're so good as Methodists, and we go out and do this. Uh Or we think we're so good as Christians. When we start depending upon our own status and identity as Christians or Methodists or whatever, and not upon Jesus Christ, that's the point where we start having trouble. Same thing. That's exactly what's going on here. They were depending upon their identity as Jews and saying, we're better than the Gentiles. You Gentiles should become like us. And Paul is saying, well, what? Why? Yeah, you've got an advantage. You've got the logia. Yeah, you've got the advantage in that that sense. Here's your advantage. And then he quotes from the Psalms and Isaiah at them. Yeah, you know how much you're a sinner. Oh, you should. You know how much your mouth is full of open graves and venom under your tongue. You, you, You should know that. Not how great we are. I mean, the, the, the Jewish Christian church did what most Christian churches do today, and that's they, they didn't sing how great thou art. They sang how great we are. <laughs> how great we are, how great we are. <laughs> but with gusto. With gusto. Glorify God, don't you see? No. Before they sinned. <laughs> Me. That's, and, and Paul is saying, uh, you've been singing how great you are but, but, and how awful those Gentile Christians are, but this is the both of us, friends. This is both of us. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced. So that you'll shut up. <laughs> Every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You can't be justified, you can't be made righteous through the law you can't you can't be righteousified through the law because it's through the law that we know about sin questions did you answer the question earlier probably not (laughs) (laughs) you said you mentioned a date and so forth back there and I was still thinking about that uh, blood sacrifice was done away with. What, what took the place of that in the Jewish faith? Blood sacrifice was done away with because the Romans destroyed the temple. Okay. Have a place in and as a result, just, well, prior to that, uh, before about uh, 
During the occupation of Judea and the deportation of the Jews to Babylon, during that period of time, they went without sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And they developed or started the development of the synagogue system where they would meet and study the scriptures together. And when they came back to Judea and started to resettle the land and they reestablished the sacrificial system, they built the second temple. And they reestablished the sacrificial system, but they still had the synagogue system, which then grew and developed. And as Jews would go out from Judea and live elsewhere doing commerce and business, they would take their, the synagogue system with them and establish synagogues elsewhere. And in the synagogue, they would read the Torah, they would read the writings, they would read the prophets, and they would discuss and interpret them. And that system existed parallel, and it was run by the Pharisees, whereas the Sadducees ran the temple operation. Well, the temple operation and the, and the, and the, and the synagogue operation worked in tandem. They worked together. Although the two political parties that controlled both were often fighting with each other through the Sanhedrin, nevertheless, they still operated kind of hand in glove or side by side. There was one temple, many synagogues. Correct. The temple was located in Jerusalem and no place else uh, in Judaism. And um, there's lots to be said about that, but within Judaism, uh, in the southern kingdom, it was located in, in Jerusalem. And the synagogues were everywhere. But you were saying, you gave him a date. I know it's not. Now, in 70, 70 AD, AD, 70 AD, in 70 yeah. AD the Ro well, prior to that, the Roman siege of Jerusalem for several years. But then in 70 AD, the Romans finally took Jerusalem and they destroyed everything, and specifically the, the temple itself. Burned the city, destroyed the temple. And from that point on, there have been no sacrifices that are officially accepted within Judaism. Because within, Judea, within Pharisaic and Sadducean Judaism, you had to have a temple on the Temple Mount, on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, in order to have official valid sacrifices. There was a Jewish temple in Egypt for a period of time, but that's another story. But in 70 AD, the official sacrificial system came to a close. Okay, that's what I was wondering. I thought it did. I couldn't see what replaced it. The, what replaced it? What, re what replaced it? <laughs> was a changing of the law. Was a reinterpretation. For the Jews was a reinterpretation of, of the purpose and nature of their religion. From a sacrificial one where sin was dealt with by, by sacrifice and cleansing. Mm -hmm. To one where... You attempted to live the best moral life you can in accord with the laws of the Old Testament, and where you failed, God forgave you anyway. Oh, neat. <laughs> now, to, to give you the Christian interpretation, what replaced the sacrificial system replaced it about 40 years early, and that's the death of Jesus. The sacrificial system continued like with inertia, it just kept on going until it got destroyed. But Jesus takes its place. In Christianity, then, Jesus takes the place. There is one sacrifice, eternal, all sins, past, present, and future, taken care of in one sacrifice. So we don't have a continual sacrificial religion. We have a one sacrifice religion that starts it. And, and then that and the effect and result of that 
transforms the people. So the Jews were still sacrificing while Paul was alive, while he's Oh, yes, him. absolutely. So how come we, well, I guess we're going to get to it. We're going to get to the stuff about sac Paul and sacrifices. Yes. That, well, we got all the circumcision. Well, sacrifices well, to me seems to be bloody animals everywhere. seems to be bigger. I don't know. Well, it's easier to sacrifice. It's easier to, 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 to cut on people than it is to, to, to roast a sheep. Depends on the sheep. Well, don't they have a, a, a certain uh, there is only celebration where all. Is it all debts are forgiven, or is it a young people? Yeah. Yeah. That's all debts are forgiven, not all sins are forgiven. Yeah, um, and you might even say, I mean, there's been lots of arguments within Judaism about this all the way up to today, but the killing of the Passover lamb in some Jewish circles is seen as a, to this day, sacrifice. It doesn't happen on Mount Moriah. But they, some Jewish groups, especially in the Orthodox community, still see it as a kind of sacrifice, echoing back not just to the Passover itself, but to the practices of the pre-Mosaic sacrifices, where you could have them anywhere. Uh, back to the days when the, when the um, Ark of the Covenant was sort of the portable temple, the Winnebago of the, of the temple world, and you could have sacrifices wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, that's where you had your sacrifice, and it kind of goes, they, they kind of view that, therefore, in the Passover itself, sort of as the um, sort of a sacrificial system to this day, and then the Passover concept is, the, is seen as a metaphor for God passing over all of their sins. And so it's still, but you see, that then got completely incorporated into Christianity, and Jesus becomes our Passover lamb. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and, lamb. And exactly. So it got incorporated into Christianity, too, early on, really early on, at biblical period in the New Testament. So, in Paul. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah. Uh, what replaced it, what happened, it was in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple, and what replaced it was the the still existing synagogue system. When the temple was wiped out, what happened to Judaism? Prior to the destruction of the temple, there were many different denominations of Judaism, not just the big ones that we know of today, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots. There, there were a whole lot more than that. Those are just the biggies that we know of today. They're like the Baptists, the Methodists, the Catholics, and the Lutherans. But there were thousands of tiny little sects of Judaism prior to the destruction of the Second Temple. When the Second Temple was destroyed, the cohesion which held them all together, which was the Temple, was lost. So what do you do? You had to have a new source of cohesion, and the people who owned it, the synagogue, and the people who owned it were the Pharisees. And they said, if you're going to come and be part of us, you've got to become a Pharisee. And hence, Judaism became Pharisaic Judaism. There was only one form of Judaism. Within about 40 years of the destruction of the Second Temple, all the other denominations of Judaism had been sort of absorbed into Phariseeism. And they adopted the rules and the regulations and the procedures, the religious practices of Pharisaic Judaism. And that's the situation that we essentially have today, except they re-denominize themselves. And you've got your Orthodox and your Conservatives and your Reformed and all, all various versions but they all trace themselves back to Pharisaic Judaism. 
and that the synagogue system became that which replaced the temple system. Listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2008 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.